This is episode 25 of the Immunology Podcast, Immunology and Industry with Drs. Andy Kokaji and Hannah Lee. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Roud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Drs. Andy Kokaji and Hannah Lee from Stem Cell Technologies on the podcast to talk about their roles in research and product development. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up, but first... Stem Cell Technologies would like to remind you about human immunology news. It covers everything from immunotherapy, autoimmunity, and adaptive and innate immunity. Human Immunology News keeps readers current with the latest news, research, policy, events, and jobs relevant to the immunology community. Subscribe for free at www.humanimmunologynews.com. All right, Brenda, what have you been up to? Hey, Jason. Uh, not much. Uh, just enjoying a couple of nice sunny days. So. No, no experiments behaving poorly or anything? Uh, well, that's always the case. I've been having a couple of, of kind of st strange results. So today I had a really nice conversation with, with the lab trying to get some ideas about how to explain these results. How about, how about you? It's conference season, so I get to start going to conferences soon. Experimental biology is coming up. Um, there's AAI. I don't know if I get to make it to that one. Then there's Digestive Disease Week. There's all types of fun stuff coming. I don't know. Do you get to go anywhere? As a matter of fact, I have signed up for a conference here uh, in May. So... Fun. KIMT is a immunotherapy conference uh, here in Germany, uh, so I'm very excited. Just that's just a hop and skip and a jump, a whole other country, right? Oh yeah, I'll take an international train. OMG, very excited. Come on, give me the small things. You know, you gotta start appreciating the small things. You have international uh, trains that function. That's awesome. Oh yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get back into the science land. I can start with one. So. Of course, it's COVID papers time. Um, this oh, is a really short one in nature medicine. But hey, I, I anticipate by the second half of this year, we'll be talking about COVID a lot less. So we'll see here. Uh, maybe a few less papers. But uh, the papers have immune response to SARS-CoV-2 after a booster of mRNA-1273, an open-label phase two trial. mRNA-1273 is the Moderna vaccine. That's its uh, generic trial name. Um, it's in nature medicine. First author is Lawrence Chu, last author is Roderick McPhee, and it came out March 3rd. So I can really get to the point of this really quick. They looked at uh, tighter levels and response to pseudovirus after your primary series, 28 days, and then 28 days after the booster, and showed that 20 days after the booster, your antibody levels were better than they were after the primary series. That's pretty much the whole thing. They look at a couple different doses. They look at side effects. This is a clinical trial, but the, the big point being this is the trial to validate the boosters long-term, right? And the boosters work, and they produce protective antibody levels, and they looked at Delta variant um, in particular. Um, and it was protective against Delta, it's a little early to have all the Omicron data in it, obviously, because of the time lag. But point being is boosters produce an even better response later, which you'd expect, right? Your third time with an antigen, you've been fully immune primed. You're going to have a better response in your second one, and it restores it. So in protective effects you know, with boosters now have a lot of mechanism. We thought they would work. We assume they would work. You know, Boots on the ground data were suggesting that it was going to help, and this really then backs it up and shows that, hey, you get no more side effect, you get more, which is another key part. They don't see any worsening side effects here, but you see a boost past um, both the pre-booster baseline, so fourfold, um, and uh, in terms of seroresponse, and you see um, neutralizing titers rise even above what you saw after the second dose a month later. So basically, yes, the boosters do protect that antibody immunity. They don't get in a T-cell or function or B-cell function at all in this one, uh, which is kind of the second part, and they admit this as a limitation. And I agree, but that stuff always comes later because it's much harder assays to do, and at least we're seeing that booster titers do as you anticipate. So boosters raise your titers rapidly back to higher than right after you had it. 
which is what they should do. So yeah. go team. Glad to know they're due. The vaccines do what they're expected. Although, you know, Delta is such a 2021 thing, but well, I guess uh, it is. We have the information we have. Um, one of the things with the Moderna vaccine was that Moderna had, as you mentioned, more severe side effects uh, than Pfizer uh, was partly due to the larger actual dose of mRNA. And I see in this paper, they test different. They test 50 micrograms versus 100 micrograms, and the 100 was the original dose, right? Do they look into differences between one or the other dose? The titers are a little lower at 50 versus 100, and but they don't see a significant side effect shift. Oh, so they have the same side effects with 50. Yeah. All right. But the booster, I believe, is at 50. Yeah, that's what I heard. And also the kids uh, dose, right? It's 50. Yeah, the kid dose is all different. Oh, yeah. I'm not even getting into peds dosing. Children are not young adults is the number one thing you learn in your pediatric rotation. They have their own physiology and you can't just weight based dose and all that stuff. You can within a kids, but that's a set physiology for weight based dosing in children. You can't apply the same formula to adults. Okay. But then what is the dose that that pediatric uh, patients get? Do you know? Uh, no, honestly. I thought it was 50 micrograms that were giving the kids, but I might be wrong. But well, thanks for, for bringing this up. Um, it's always nice to see the data supporting what we all hoped, which is that it makes sense to give boosters and that you can actually quantify their effect. Anyway, uh, and talking about, you know antibodies responses and stuff like that. I have today the topic of my papers is B cells in unexpected places. B cells as you've never seen them before. And I think that in the same way that we've been really um, focusing on giving T cells their day and they're the sun uh, when it comes to COVID response, I think it's nice to give B cells uh, their their space um in in other uh, usually T cell dominated areas. So my first paper um, is called Establishment of Fetal Maternal Tolerance Through Glycan Mediated B Cell Suppression. Pay was published in, in Nature, first author Gabriel Risuto, and from the lab of Adrian Erlenbacher at UCSF. And basically they look into mechanisms of uh, fetal maternal tolerance. Uh, they have mouse models, uh, which is very interesting because, as as I think, it's easy to imagine, uh, fetuses are basically foreign, um, foreign organisms inside uh, a mother, and they are in principle uh, fair targets for so for rejection by the mother, but somehow. Babies get to survive in mothers, uh, in, in, in the uterus of mothers without being rejected. And there's several mechanisms that uh, aim at keeping the, the baby safe inside the uterus. And so these people focus on antigens expressed by trophoblasts, which are the cells from the placenta that are in their interface with the maternal serve kind of with the maternal immune system. So they are the ones that are in contact with the blood, with the maternal blood, and therefore can be their antigens can be picked up by uh, the the maternal immune system. But somehow those antigens they present and those proteins that are in their surface are not activating maternal T cells. And so they um, look into a model in which they have mice, B6, black six mice, that are, um, that are, have, are, so they have fetuses that are expressing ova antigen. And they're expressing them as a transmembrane ova, and they're expressed on maternal um, placental trophoblasts. And what they see is that in, the, in these mice, these uh, although there is this ova being presented only in the fetuses because it's derived from the the male, so the the, the actual the, the pregnant mice are not don't have ova, but still they still uh, are able to uh, accept to not reject the fetus because of this particular antigen. 
And this is not what you see if you are, for example, transplanting an organ to these mice that are expressing uh, ovalumin. And so they, um, what they see is that in if they have uh, one way of, for example, um, if you treat m mice with with ova and you in inject them, uh, inject just regular ova with some immunogenic uh, adjuvant such as poly IC or anti CD forty. You see that these mice, uh, if you if you also transfer T two cells, you will get cells that are expanded in the mice and are showing all the signs of activation CD forty four, high expression, different gamma. Uh, but if you do this on mice that are pregnant with ova expressing fetuses, these cells they you get cells OT two transfer cells in these pregnant mice will proliferate, but will not become activated, will not show the same uh, markers of activation. And what they show, they show is that they, this is not explained by, for example, an expansion of regulatory T cells uh, in, the, in, the, in, this, in this mice, um, but they see that these basically cells are they still proliferate, but they don't become activated and kind of Th1 cells. And what they start looking and trying to understand why are these cells being uh, in, inhibited in a way, and they actually see that present, presentation of antigen by particularly B cells, so if you have mice that are lacking the B cells, uh, they uh, are presenting the trophil uh, antigens that are derived from the trophoblast cells, in the case of antigen that is being expressed in trophoblasts of the, of the fetus, B cells are presenting this antigen and in a way that is actually inhibiting T cell activation. And so they, they use these models in which they knock out B cells, they also knock out dendritic cells, but they show that it is the B cells that are mostly preferentially presenting these antigens to CD4 cells and that they are taking it up and that they are actually uh, inter interacting with CD4 cells. And what is about this particular, because this only works if it is ova that is uh, presented by trophoblasts, that is expressed on trophoblasts, on the surface of trophoblasts. And what they see is that actually this, this ova has a glycan uh, decoration that is very specific and that the, you don't see it in non-trophoblast-derived um, proteins. They see N-linked glycans that are containing partic two particular sugars, which are uh, two types of sialic acid sugars that are presented almost exclusively on antigens, in this case, well, ova that is derived from trophoblasts. And you can find maternal plasma and other, uh, and also other antigens derived from, from trophoblasts are found in maternal plasma. And this uh, expression of the sialic acid sialylation, how do you say it properly, Jason? Salicylation? Salicylation? No. It's salicylic acid or No, sialic acid. Sialic acid. So that would be, yeah, you have to go to an sialicylation. Yeah. Sialicylation. Sialization. Sial, sial, oh, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Sialization. So it's a word this, you read, not say. Exactly. I don't think I've said it out loud very often. And the thing is that this sialic acids actually engage members of the cyclic family of surface receptors that mediate immunosuppression. So, uh, and they mentioned particularly CD22, which is ex specifically expressed in B cells. And they come up, so they also, they look into mice, there are a uh, knockout for this CD22, there are knockout also for LIN, which is a, uh, a protein kinase downstream from CD22. And they show that it is this, uh, this connection, this signaling by the sugars through CD22 into, the, into LIN, and that generates B cells that preferentially suppress the function of CD4 cells. They interact with. And this is a way by which uh, ma the maternal immune system becomes tolerant towards uh, antigens that are derived from the fetus. 
so I think it was so they 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 think it's very interesting because well they do all of it in mouse, and uh, but they um, they also suggest that so they also say that you can find this highly highly silated uh, sugars in human uh, uh, maternal blood. Uh, of pregnant women, and they suggest so they, they suggest that this is also a mechanism that might be also very important for uh, fetal tolerance in uh, human subjects. And I think uh, it's really cool to see, you know, well, how are we keeping this fetuses away from the maternal immune system? Oh, this is super interesting. So, and then it's all about the sugars, essentially. Yeah, it's a sweet, sweet protection. Yeah, I wonder if, it, if this affects anything with gestational diabetes or anything, if there's something because of sugar metabolism. It shouldn't because it's different sugars. Yeah. Right. But I wonder if something screwy happens. Or if maybe preeclampsia oh, yeah. has some inappropriate autoimmune reaction to the sugars. Yeah. They, they, they suggest that uh, some of these, uh, yeah, preeclampsia, particularly, that uh, might be, this might be involved in, in the risk of preeclampsia. All right, then. Well, I don't have anything nearly as cool. I just have another COVID paper, but it's really not about COVID. It's about a very interesting cell mapping technology. And then they, you know, juice it with a little COVID to, to look at some immune responses. So this is called multi-scale fate identifies multimodal signatures of COVID-19. First author is Monique Kuchru. Last author is Samita Kirishswamy, and then published 28th of February in Nature Biotechnology. So this paper was a bit of a stretch to read. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. Uh, we're getting into differential equations and Fourier transforms and group transformations. And the math wasn't uh, easy to dig through. And I'd have to spend a lot more time than I had to really get into it. But really what it is, is we all know about UMAP or TISNY or, or principally, you know, PCA analyses for all of our data, right? For, for um, single cell RNA-seq, for microbiome groups, anything where we're trying, we're taking high complex, high volume, large data sets and trying to group and cluster and figure out relationships. So essentially all this ever, the only the only way that you can get this done, right, is by the algorithms you use, and they all have their advantages and flaws. And so what they try to sell here, and I think they do a pretty good job, and I need a data scientist to convince, you know, to bounce this off of more, because I'm going a little bit out of my realm here, uh, but I thought it was interesting to look at, was that they came up with a new mechanism to, to try to do this. But their claim is that it you can scale the granularity. So do I want to have clusters of T cells versus B cells versus monocytes, right? And macro, you know, or do I want to have, you know, CD4 positive, you know, if I want every high, low marker, like you would get on flow, right? Do I want that level within the T cell granularity? And usually what you have to do is you have to feed into the system um, only the granularity you want and kick that back out. You don't have a way to scale easy. So what this does is you can put it all in at once and then you can set the scale threshold and then get different patterning. So you can zoom in and out and it doesn't distort. So that's the first bit. So I can say, oh, T cell, B cell clustering, cool. Now I'm gonna go into T cells and go, oh, now this clustering comes out and you can see the subgroups. They're not suddenly over here. The cells are still in the same relative position. It's just within that cluster, then you can see the subgroups are there. <clears throat> so that was the first part that I thought was really interesting here um how they do it is they do kind of a diffusion relationship so kind of a random you know diffusion random walk mechanism towards each other from <clears throat> excuse me what i can gather and they, so they do that that is the first step i'm trying to pull up they have a nice schematic at the beginning so i think they did a good job so they do this diffusion to break it apart and then they recondense it and so by doing the and, and their claim is by doing it one way and then back to the other, you establish the relationship between all the points, but then you recondense that relationship in and collapse it down on itself so that then you can have a larger group. But since you diffused everything across every cell and then you build the relationship back up, it's kind of like a two-way, right? If you just did diffusion, this links to A to B to C to D. 
But if you collapse it back, you get the back linkage and that allows the zoom, right? If you want to go high to low and low to high and in between and establish the relationships, you want kind of a two-way pointer. And so then this whole system has all these eigenvectors built out and like, you know, pointers from one to the other with, you know, scalar relationships between everything. And that's how they have this relationship clustering that they can go in and out of and then just go to that layer and sum, essentially, or integrate, really. And that's not really a sum. But and that's how they get it. And so then they they walk through this. They spend a lot of time walking through this. I could only partially follow it along with without like I didn't have the time to deep dive all of the math and play with this for a while or download the software and go into it, um, which I wanted to. But, you know, only limited hours in a day. And then they show that there are certain cell populations that were associated with death in COVID patients, and this bared out clinically. And then they looked and saw that certain HLA populations, you know, this CD14 low, CD16 high, HLA low populations of monocytes is enriched mortality. There's been a thought previously that IL-10 not, uh, drops the loss of HLA DR in monocytes. And so that's why they're seeing this. So basically, in the end, what they do is they take this model, shove it through COVID cell data, you know, patients with COVID, and try to draw some conclusions and so some relationships that may not have been fully known before. There were kind of things that people reported on, but this picks up de novo blind. And so that's how they link it to COVID to really, hey, apply the tech to something and show that it's useful, which I get. 100% makes sense, right? And then they can apply this, you know, you know, 2 million, 22 million cells on a cytokine flow panel, those types of things. So you don't, you don't just need this for RNA-seq data. You can do it on any large volume multiplex data pathway you know so 20 color flow what have you so that's it it's very interesting for people who are on the data side and are trying to find better tools to graph relationships with each other i definitely look at it um i, I think they posted the whole package for people to use in the case of this particular covid data what kind of data do they feed the model do you know uh, i mean in this case they fed it i mean they can feed it anything right so you, mm -hmm. you feed rna seq data single cell rna seq you can feed it the flow data and then it'll build out so it's not like it's wow. a model. It's not like it, it, there is some AI. There's kind of like an AI training component because it does the back and forth to figure out mm. the relationships, but it's designed to be used for whatever you want. Right. Okay. It's any multivariate. It's any, you know, I have a thing with many things measured on it, and then I have many of those things. Is there, uh, if you remember, is there any particular uh, thing they found uh, that maybe surprised you uh, regarding the mortality in COVID that maybe wasn't uh, seen before? Not really. Like, hey, these cells that we, you know, reports are saying may be a problem look like they're associated with mortality here. So it's maybe picking up a signal that other people have found a different way. Okay. But it, to me, it was more of a gut check that this is driving interesting information. But I wasn't convinced that, oh, wow, it found this brand new relationship. They didn't, they didn't go, oh, it found this brand new relationship. Let me spend two years ferreting out that science part and get it out. They put it in nature biotechnology say hey here's a new mechanism and yeah it finds things well thanks for sharing one more and we're done uh so as i said uh b cell focus today and my second uh paper uh is called tertiary lymphoid structures generate and propagate anti-tumor antibody producing plasma cells in renal cell cancer and this was published in immunology first author maxime malan from the lab of Wolf Hermann Friedman at the Sorbonne University in Paris. Um, so they, in this paper, they look at a very interesting structure uh, often found within tumors, which are tertiary infrastructures. Tertiary infrastructures are basically sites in which you see a structure resembling a, a lymphoid, a, a lympho, a lymphoid organ. And but that are found in places that are not expected or not they don't have the full uh, structure. But you do, for example, see B cells and T cells uh, in, in kind of clustering in one physical place. And usually these places are um, characterized by yeah having a um, T cell zone and where you have. Uh, where T cells are contacting uh, uh, dendritic cells, you have a follicular B cell zone that is well characterized by having many uh, B cells, and 
often and I think lately there has been a lot of interest uh, around the presence of these structures with within inside tumors and that they have been associated with better prognosis and better uh, response to checkpoint inhibition and such uh, and, and several types of cancer. Uh, so in this paper, they uh, decided to take a deep, deep visual dive into the structure of TLSs, uh, and they focus on then the kind of the, the the story of the B cells in these TLSs. So, as I mentioned, um, TLSs. What is the important thing to remember? As I say, they have, they will have follicular helper cells. They will gonna have things that are. Uh, so they're gonna have germinal centers, and they're gonna have. B cells that are have a lot of the height of the hallmarks of uh, plasma cells or matured uh, memory B cells, and but it is not clear really what is the 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 kind of if all of those cells that are within those B cells that are inside the tumor are they really maturing in there are they coming from official lymphoid tissues and just Kind of uh, finding a, a, a place in this in this TLSs is not very clear, and so they try to look into that by also importantly looking at the structure using uh, spatial transcriptomics. They they rely on this um, uh, platform from Tenex Genomics, which is the Visum spatial transcriptomic technology, in which very interestingly they uh, can measure the full transcriptome of, uh, they use spatially barcoded oligonucleotides and they have them like in, on spots on this kind of, uh, yeah, chips. And they can uh, do the quantification and the they can pick up all the RNA from spots of 55 uh, micrometer in diameter and up to 5,000 spots for one of these kind of chips. And that's kind of cool. I have to say, uh, because it's like single cell sequencing, they are doing a lot with very little material, so pretty cool. Um, and then you, what you get is like an image made of like pixels, so to say, in which you can look into the expression of different transcripts, and then you can characterize why, why was the cell type that was you know, located into that particular spot. Uh, so what they do, they have uh, cells, they have many, many uh, primary tumors from patients with cell, uh, clear cell renal cell carcinoma. Uh, some of these patients are also have, they have, they have information about their treatment with checkpoint inhibition. I'll just come back to that later. Uh, but they take, and this is really cool. They take literally uh, sections from that were uh, um, conserved from this patient, either uh, frozen material, FFPE, so uh, fixed material, and they are able of running this, this platform on these uh, slides of material that was conserved a um, long time ago. And they look into the, so they characterize the slides, they find uh, areas that, uh, that uh, are um, corresponding to TLSs, which you now they find signatures that have B cells and T cell signatures. And, but you now they find that not all of the tumors they look at have TLS regions that some tumors have and some have, some have not. So there's a nice kind of comparison within their, their uh, cohort. And they, they uh, first try to determine a TLS um, transcriptomic signature. So they have, on the one hand, they identify the TLS through more kind of, um, quote unquote, traditional markers, basically CD20, CD3. And, and then they see, the, you, you can see in the slides that where the pieces are all kind of uh, clustering together. And then on top of that, so they look into those areas and they find a bunch of genes that are kind of generate a signature that associate with TLS is found by immunohistochemistry. Uh, chemistry. And what, of course, the most important uh, signature they see is associated to B cells. Most of the genes that make the signature are IgG genes or and things related to B cells. And so they focus on the, on the B cells in the TLS and the tumor, and they find that um, most of the switch, so they have found a lot of B cells, some of them are switched, some of them are expressing IgGs, some of them are expressing IgMs, and so that means they're not yet 
completely mature uh, B cells. And they see uh, that within the TLSS, they see signatures of uh, hypermutation and clonal selection happening inside of the structures. They have uh, they find co-localizing different maturation subtypes of B cells or signatures associated with maturation subtypes of B cells. They find plasma cells, which are the ones that are uh, really uh, expressing and uh, secreting uh, um, antibodies. And they see that within the TLS and those samples that have TLSs, they see a very highly kind of clonally expanded uh, cell population. And um, what is really cool, and with some caveats, but they also even are able to do sequencing of the BCR, uh, the BCR receptors in these B cells. With some caveats, as I say, they need to have a couple of controls because this is not the best material to do this, but they do, that's how they look into the clonality and they actually identified somatic hypermutation and they can kind of characterize the level of maturity of the B cells in these different areas that they look at. And what is, and I think what is not that that uh, strange is that in, in those samples that don't have TLSs, they see a lot less uh, clonotypes and they see a lot less clonality of these of these uh, B cell repertoires. So what this so they conclude that uh, B cells are going into the TLSs. They are maturating. They're hypermutating, and then they are generating mature B cells or and plasma cells that are. And then what's very interesting, these plasma cells then uh, tend to exit this TLS, these germinal centers. They change their chemokine receptor patterns, and they start, for example, responding to one chemokine in particular they focus on is CXCL12. With CXCL12, uh, uh, is, um, so the, the receptor for CXCL12, which... Uh, this chemokine is known to be expressed on, fibr on fibroblasts. And another thing that they notice is that they see that plasma cells tend to find themselves in close proximity to fibroblasts, and they seem to kind of exit and distribute themselves on top of kind of fibroblastic tracts. And they suggest that this fibroblast, by expressing CXCL12, uh, which is uh, recognized by plasma cells and not so much by non-plasma cell B cells, they are they are um, allowing these plasma cells to exit the, the germinal centers, exit the TLSs, and start producing antibodies inside of other areas of the tumor. They also, and, and to end, they just think what are what could be the effect of having these plasma cells and these antibodies. They show that TLS-positive tumors have a lot of antibody signals and a lot of antibodies uh, kind of decorating tumor cells. They suggest that these antibodies are specific against tumor cell antigens. And they so you also find that a, a correlation between macro CD8, uh, C68-positive macrophages and uh, apoptotic cells in those tumors that have a high IgG signal, suggesting that these IgGs are decorating tumor cells and this is... Uh, in, uh, inducing macrophages to for for um, um, so these direct apoptosis by macrophage macrophages and just as a thing last thing is that they look into clinical data and show and find that uh, in those patients that were treated with ICI with uh, you know uh, with uh, checkpoint inhibitors they see that patients with uh, that are treated with nivolumab those that have a high IgG tumoral staining, they have a cutoff, and so they, they have kind of a high and a low, and those patients with high IgG staining do significantly better upon a, a new volume of treatment, so anti-PD-1 treatment, that those are below the mean, also suggesting that the presence of these antibodies is actually important for uh, tumor immunity. So, yeah, really nice. A really nice paper. Thank you. So, yeah. Oh, I'd start pressing for questions, but we, we get to keep to a strict time limit, so I'll just uh, leave it for later. We are going to be speaking to Drs. Andy Kokaji and Hannah Lee here from Stem Cell Technologies in just a moment, but before we get to that, Stem Cell is hiring. Stem Cell Technologies is a world leader in developing services and tools for scientists working in cell biology, regenerative medicine, immunology, cancer, and disease research. 
United by a foundation of scientific integrity and driven by a mission to advance science globally, Stem Cell is a team of scientists helping scientists. They're looking for creative, driven people to join the international team. It's more than 100 current offerings in areas such as R&D, sales, business operations, quality, and marketing, all at jobs.stemcell.com. Today, joining us are doctors Andy Kokari and Dr. Hannah Lee. Uh, they are Senior Director of Immunology and Senior Director of Product Management at Stem Cell Technologies. And they're going to talk to us about their experience, their work, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Happy to be here. I just want to start saying... Um, Andy, I know that you have been heavily involved with the development of a kit that I've used a lot throughout my research, the ECCEP uh, T-cell isolation kits. And I just want to say thank you for your service. Um, and I think other uh, researchers uh, I, amongst our listeners are going to say the same. And I would like to maybe start the conversation uh, by asking you a little bit about your background and how did you become Senior Director of Immunology at Stem Cell? Uh, background, I have a PhD in immunology. Um, I really did my early work in the area of sort of T-cell biology, and that was primarily the work that I did during my PhD. Uh, and then I joined Stem Cell in 2008, fresh out of my PhD. I was a bright-eyed, eager scientist, really wanting to make my mark in the world of science and join Stem Cell. You know, I, I really sort of Join stem cell is a great uh, Canadian representation of biotech. Um, and that's one of the big drivers of why I joined stem cell and really wanted to move out from Edmonton and come out to Vancouver. And you know, Vancouver is a fantastic place to live in as well. But um, <clears throat> and then through my career at stem cell, I started as a as an individual contributor, as a scientist developing products. And throughout the course of my 13 year tenure at stem cell, it sort of morphed into more of a managerial role and, and sort of oversight role and and seeing product development and prioritization and and taking on more managerial administrative sort of duties. So Hannah, kind of same question at you, um, and maybe for for those who don't follow industry as much, maybe an explanation of the difference between what you guys do at a high level. Sure, sure. So in terms of my background. Similar to Andy, did a PhD in immunology um, out at the University of Toronto. And I would say for me, um, near the tail end of my PhD, realized that even though I was very interested, also did it in T-cell biology and infectious disease, there wasn't this drive and this passion to continue down that really niche route of academia. And so wanted to start exploring different opportunities that could leverage the soft skills that I've gained, but also being really intertwined with science. And um, so when I graduated, I started, like I said, exploring, uh, worked in a tech transfer office at the U of T and really liked the idea of taking all the innovation that happens on the bench, but applying it to the greater market or purpose. And so started looking at opportunities in industry and landed at stem cell, partially because really wanted to live in Vancouver. It's a beautiful city. <laughs> but in addition to, was very familiar with stem cell because similar to you, Brenda, also used the EasySet T cell isolation kit <laughs> throughout the course of my PhD. And so, um, was familiar with the name, familiar with the sales reps that always came to our lab. So applied for a job. And actually I started in sales because that's, I would say as a grad student, that's pretty much like the scope of exposure I had when it comes to industry, except for being a scientist on the bench. And then actually a year within um, sales was exposed to the different vast array of opportunities um, for scientists uh, off the bench in a company and product management was one of those. And what a product manager is responsible for is 
really ensuring that we're developing a product that has a commercial intent, a commercial success out in the market. And this is really driving the commercialization plans. So um, whether or not the product creates value to the customer, what that value is, and working with other departments to ensuring that the customer knows about that value and chooses that particular product. So we work across all different uh, with all different groups, including Andy and his team um, in the development of our product, but working very closely with our sales reps and educating them how to sell the product to our marketing teams in terms of what do we say about our product. So it's a very um, unique, I would say, position in a company, which allows us to really understand the technology. So hence the PhD has been very beneficial for me. Um, understanding the science, understanding that customer, because I used to be that customer, um, to uh, building the business acumen um, that's really needed in an industry. So that's been the course of my career at Stem Cell from, from joining product management and then just moving along in regards to managing the products that Andy's team was creating. So product manager for cell separation and immunology products for a large duration of time, and then started to become more in a managerial role. So seeing and overseeing the group of product managers in the company. So I think that gives a, a good next segue um, that, that comes to mind for me, um, which is, could you explain to people who, you know, because we have a lot of postdocs, a lot of grad students who listen to this uh, podcast, what you think the biggest difference between academia and industry is? I know I have my opinions, but it's always good to get other people's uh, thoughts on this as well. Um, maybe just to keep the order the same so we always know who's talking. Andy, do you want to go first and then Hannah? Yeah, sure. That's a, that's a great question. And it's a <clears throat> typically always a great interview question whenever we're interviewing a scientist or a new person that's joining the company and you know what their thoughts are on the differences. But I think fundamentally, I always refer back to my early interview time with our, our retired CSO at this point now. And, and it was always the concept that in industry um, or in academia, essentially, you're pursuing your interests, your, your personal interest and pursuit in science and what fascinates you as an individual and as a, as a lab. Um, whereas when you move into industry, you know, you, you think about it as that you're no longer going to be that single shining star and that you need to sort of work as a, as a collaborative effort and you know, more of like a constellation of, of people that really are driving the business forward and everybody plays a key part of it and you will always notice if something's missing. Um, and that's a, that's a big thing where um, it won't be your name in, in lights and it's, it's, the, it's the company's name in lights that you're really trying to drive forward. And for me, I think the biggest part within industry, at least based on my personal experiences, the level of impact that you can make through industry compared to um, in academia. And I feel like because in academia it is, as Andy said, a little bit of on your own and, and independent versus working in a team. I think having a powerhouse of a team, having a powerhouse of hundreds working on a common goal and a common purpose, you know, the, the products you make, the impact that you make, seemingly is, is, is much greater um, than, than say in, in some cases in, in, a, in, in academia. So I would say that's, that's primarily based on my own experience, the differences that, that I see. I would like to ask, um, so, and I think it's related to what you say about being part of a team and, and kind of moving forward the goals of your company. Uh, could it, as a as a way to illustrate these uh, this process to our listeners, let's say you you want to bring a product, you have an idea. Part of your research and development development team brings, for example, an idea for a new culture media, or you know, identify a problem, and you so you put your people to work on it. How does this how does this process go from kind of in conception or identification of a niche of an issue? all the way until, you know, the product is released for, for researchers to use. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a process for sure. Um, and it goes back to that sort of team effort and everybody plays a role in this process. And, you know, right from the ideation phase, it's a very close collaboration with the scientific team, the product management team, our sales team, our product support team that, you know, are really listening to the voice of 
of researchers, which is our customers and scientists globally. And we're trying to solve a problem for them and make their lives easier. Um, and that's one of the drivers of what we do at stem cell. And from that process, then it goes back into how are we going to solve the problem? And that's when we want our development teams and our engineering teams get involved, develop product, demonstrate its utility. And then that's just the beginning. I mean, that's when it goes into our tech transfer group. We need to sort of make sure that we can manufacture it reproducibly. We can test it and release it. Um, and then it goes out, marketing materials gets made, sales teams are trained, our supply and logistics team, just the fact that we can receive an order and ship it next the same day out to a customer in a different part of the world. It's a massive team effort to make these things happen. And, and just the, the start of making a project or a product or the idea of a product, that's just the, the, you know, the very, very start of it. And it takes an entire organization to make it happen. And I would say in addition to that, I think what, maybe make stem cell unique is, you know, our motto of scientists helping scientists. It really is this ethos that we all apply when it comes to that inception, as, as Andy said, to bringing it through to the development, to ultimately the manufacturing and the selling and marketing of the product. We really keep in mind that customer who were very customer centric, customer focused, like, will this actually create value for that customer? Will they actually see a difference in their day-to-day -day work using this particular product? And, and so it's, it's not based, it's, there's a huge element of innovation, obviously, that needs to be done in order for, for this to take place, but really it's rooted around the customer. And so throughout every single course and every decision that's made, um, this is what we want to champion. It's, is, does the customer need this? Does the customer see value in this um, in order for us to ultimately achieve this commercial success that I had indicated before, um, which ends up being uh, an advantage to us at stem cell. So I, I think that's, you hit something really important there is that there's a pragmatism to industry that you don't have to have, nor necessarily do you want in academia, right? You have to be able to sell a product to enough scientists to make it sense for you not to just come up with idea but then take it all the way through just like you have to have a therapy that is efficacious that's better than current therapies in my case or that you can make at an affordable price um given all the difficulties and now that we're in the third year of a pandemic what's changed for you guys with that besides i know there's constraints put aside working from home and trying to get that done like on our end the supply shortages just make the universe weird. Have you guys started to develop, and maybe you can't say this, but if you can, have you started considering how you develop products and work through those things, given the fact that you may not have cryo vials for your easy sep kip one year or for six months or something? Is that started to actually, when it became not one week, not one month, not one year, but now it's year two and three, has it actually affected product development for you all? It's It's definitely something that we're aware of, and we always, you know, it's it's a core process by which when you're developing your product development company, um, risk mitigation is is a primary thing that we're constantly aware of. And our procurement teams and our, you know, making sure we have secondary suppliers for all of the raw core raw materials that we work with. And, you know, it's it's something that is at the forefront of everything we do right from the initial design phase of products we develop. Um, you know, I think the pandemic has definitely highlighted the importance of this, um, but that's a core you know, quality by design aspect that we always try and implement right from the beginning. Um, and, but, you know, to your point about the pandemic impacting that, absolutely. And I think one of the things that, you know, we're very hyper aware of, and to Hannah's point about, you know, being very customer focused, we recognize that our customers and scientists and researchers globally are, are experiencing these challenges. And so, you know, we're that, we're that same customer in that sense. So we're trying to problem solve and work around them just in, in anticipation that our, you know, our customer that may not be using our product, but may experience shortages in access to certain materials. And we try to figure out, okay, how do we solve that before it even gets into their hands? Yes, I agree. This is, <clears throat> yeah, a big part is uh, built into commercialization, which is that sustainability piece, the risk mitigation piece. So already it's built in terms of our processes and the way that we ensure that we have a great commercial product that is sustained in the market, no matter what the situation is. 
And so, yeah, we've had to adapt in ways in regards to being flexible, finding quickly, as, as Andy had mentioned, you know, even finding alternatives, even adjustments um, based on the pandemic situation, maybe shortages or, or just, uh, you know, the way that researchers are, are doing their work, you know, going into shift work or um, not having full access to all, all equipment in the lab. Um, so, so we've got a really great dynamic R&D team that has been very flexible in adjusting protocols and our products to adapt to that. In, in addition to, we've been trying really hard as a company to keep in touch with you know, the scientists, to keep in touch with the, the governing bodies, to keep in touch to, with those people to see what is happening? What are your changes of your pain points that may not have existed prior to the pandemic, but clearly is a pain point now that we can, once again, adapt our products, um, adapt our um, ways of doing work uh, with, with you. You guys have been working at stem cell for 13 years. So you have really seen the company grow and uh, from you no know, a, a Canadian company to basically a worldwide company that is a, a household name. And disclaimer, Stem Cell sponsors this podcast, but I'm not trying to uh, please uh, our sponsors. But it is fascinating because especially for researchers like me that we started doing immunology maybe not that long ago, a lot of the things, a lot of the products that are offered, we take them for granted and our things. And when you, you realize they didn't, always exist and you start reading the old papers and the ways uh, they had to the workarounds they had to to perform experiments sometimes they really surprise me so I wanted to ask you if there is maybe one or two milestones or one or two uh, uh, things that 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 uh, came up during this 13 years in your work in stem cell that you're particularly proud of or that you think that maybe the the the, the, the average researcher doesn't appreciate enough um, yeah, I, I think it's been a it's been a great journey. I think um, stem cell has grown significantly over the course of the time we've we've been there. And I remember being in data meetings where pretty much everybody in the company used to be able to be in data meeting, including our sales team, our marketing team, our scientific team, and certain discussing certain projects and problems and products um, to a point that you know our R and D team is the size of most research institutes. You know, we have hundreds of employees in our R&D team. And, you know, when you see a big life sciences research center, that's the size of our, just our R&D team. Um, so it's been it's been awesome just seeing the growth and the breadth of work that we do. But going back to something that I would probably say I'm really proud of. And, and um, there's a there's a few different things that we've had been fortunate to develop, but ultimately, you know, we were able to sort of develop a couple of very core platform technologies at, at, in, in stem cell and some of the R&D teams, but really proud of how that came about. It was during a time where, you know, we had some, some big challenges globally in terms of our ability to sort of uh, do some of the work with, you know, the start of kind of a recession and trying to reprioritize and refocus the R&D efforts and making sure we can develop something that had the biggest impact um, to long-term revenues for the company. And, and that's when we really pulled a big team together and, and we pushed them very hard and, and they came out with some fantastic products, namely, you know, some of our, our really eight-minute easy step kits and more easy step direct kits. And um, I think that was a, was a great accomplishment and just highlights the fact that um, it came out of necessity, but also sort of outcome of it was some, some fantastic products that, um, and I keep reminding people that, you know, when you look at the publication record and you see, you know, people using our products globally, it's like you are making an impact by making just something that seems simple on the surface to scientists globally takes a ton of effort to develop so that it is simple for researchers and it is reproducible for researchers. So. I think for me, <clears throat> the milestones that I've encountered was actually my exposure to product management. And I think I highlighted this really early before. I had no clue what this position was or, or how, how it intersected in the company, but I think I really found like my niche in which it was a great merge as to what I was looking for when it came to a career. So 
I think I highlighted very early on, you know, right at the end of my PhD, I wanted to bring technologies from the bench to really to the market. And that's exactly what product management does. And at stem cell was able to really leverage my immunology background, my, my skill set there and my passion for immunology with this position that creates this, these amazing products and, and part of that journey of creating these amazing products um, to aid researchers that used to be exactly like me. Um, so for me, that was a big milestone where I decided to move into a role in product management. But um, similar to Andy, as his team had developed these really amazing innovative products, being part of that journey has also been uh, really, really fun. And um, in, in regards to seeing that impact that it makes from the regents and how we vial, you know, particles and, and cocktails and in, in little tubes to creating these instruments that enable researchers to do their work much more efficiently. And so it's, and, and venturing into new markets. I think that's also a big milestone for me where seeing how the immunology market has shifted and moving towards even more clinical, you know, applications and how stem cell is evolving our products are, are in order to meet that, that market need. And that has been really amazing too and been really fun to be part of. All right. Well, before we get to the kind of the end of the podcast, fun questions, just to kind of wrap this part up, you know, you guys essentially create magic for scientists, right? You get this kit, you do some things, out comes what you want. Brenda's fist pumping. No one can see this, but it, it, it really does feel that way. Now, we all know that whether it's figure 1D on a paper out of 100 panels or a kit, it's much more work than that. Without getting into any technical details, nothing disclosing proprietary here, is there some part of one of your kits that is like in the end for the user so simple and clean and neat, but like for some reason was an astounding amount of work to get to work that people I don't think appreciate? Like like one example, you don't have to say the details of how you got to work, but like some step, like, you know, step five is the easy step. This step, you would not believe it took, you know, 50 people to get that to happen. Like, is there any one of those that's like an apocryphal story of the hidden amount of work you guys do on a daily basis? I would say from my personal experience, it's our regulatory, our human regulatory T-cell isolation kit. It, you know, that is... That is a product that took so much effort to make it work as well as it does. Um, and that is iteration, you know, hundred and something or other of that product. Uh, and so, yeah, that is, that was the bane of my existence for many, many, probably many years actually, but super proud of how that came about and just the nuance and the, and the details of that kit is, is something that I think is, is something, uh, yeah, is really, fun and, and looking back it was a lot of fun and for me i think it was being the product manager for robocep s so the the new iteration of our very initial automated cell separation instrument so you know bringing the instrument to to create new life in it and allowed me as a product manager to work immensely cross functionally uh, in the company. So working very closely with Andy and his team on the reagents and ensuring the reagents worked on the instruments, but working very closely with the engineers, software engineers, hardware engineers, in order to create an, create an instrument. And all the complexities of an instrument is definitely much different than, than reagents. And, and uh, that exposure was yeah, it was, was challenging, but also, um, yeah, the outcome of it is, is uh, quite rewarding. Very interesting. Thanks. Thanks for sharing uh, the back, you know, the backstage of all these things. As I said, we, we just take for granted. Um, so before we move to the fun, uh, for some fun questions, I... I realized that you guys, so both of you have uh, uh, obtained your PhD in immunology, but before that, you 
both uh, uh, study your bachelor's at the University of Alberta. Did you guys actually meet there? Did you know each other before working for the same company? Or it's just by chance that uh, University of Alberta seems to be a breeding stem cell scientists and uh, my managers? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reverse the order here. And I think Hannah and I have a pretty funny story of connection at, at the UK, but... Yeah, no, Andy and I didn't know each other per se at U of A. I think we were in different years in school. And, uh, but um, I think we ended up, like we worked in the same, same lab or I think at one point his, I was, uh, your, you were a summer student or how, how does it work? It's my fourth year undergrad project. Yes, that's right. That's right. Your fourth year undergrad project was my fourth year undergrad project. And so <laughs> um, Andy, at this point, I believe you've gone into grad school and I go into my fourth year project. The PI hands me over these lab books from somebody called Andy Sorry, Haji. Sorry, Haji. Sorry Haji. those are probably <laughs> terrible in PI. <laughs> exactly. And basically continuing on the project from the previous years, fourth year student and admittedly never had met Andy did not know Andy until yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, basically joining stem cell it is a small world isn't it <laughs> it's a small world yeah. yeah smaller than we think sometimes all right well we have to wind down the podcast here so we like to do our fun questions and we're going to mix up the order some more and have Hannah go first sure. um, just to change it up and mm-hmm. I'll do the first one and then Brenda will get the second ones all right so Hannah what is the best piece of advice that you've been given ever? Doesn't have to be professional, any advice. It could be like, you know, that trick you see on the internet about how to fold your clothes better, whatever. <laughs> By the way, that's pretty awesome in terms of folding and being able to see all your clothes all nicely stacked in a drawer. Yes. <laughs> um, the best piece of advice that anyone's given to me is to be really open to opportunities. Um you you may have a perceived notion of like where you're supposed to go in your career or the choices that you make but sometimes some things just drop in your lap and you just have to sometimes just take that risk and and just try it and uh, I would say in terms of where I've come now from that grad student who really thought when I graduated my bachelor's and started grad school I really thought I was going to be a PI and and this study of immune cells was going to be my life <laughs> um yeah just taking on uh but but be given um opportunities and just trying it out and and seeing where it goes I think that's really brought me to where I am now so yeah the best piece of advice is be open be open to to taking risks and 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 the opportunities that seemingly you know come your way that's, uh, I think, very sound advice. So what would you say, Jason? Are you taking on the opportunities that life uh, brings your way? Uh, yeah, I kind of jump ship, you know. Yep. <laughs> in 2020. So uh, be, be open to the opportunities. Um, and in your case, uh, if there is an answer, uh, if you could answer any single scientific question, regardless of your expertise or the chosen field, what would that be? question B? Um, if I was to answer a single scientific question, I think it would be, you know, I'm fascinated by technology as a whole, like scientific technology and, and you know, the way science moves. And science is moving incredibly quick. Um, and I think, you know, just the power of genomics and, you know, sequencing, it, it's incredible what the amount of data and, and what's happening in the world right now. Um, and fundamentally, you know, when you think back to it, it's PCR. And I remember my first PCR reaction I did in a water bath. It was transferring, you know, a flowy from one water bath to the next to do my PCR. Uh, sorry. That's not an urban legend? No, no. That's people my, actually did that? People did that, yeah. That was my first PCR experiment I did in undergrad, I think, in one of the labs. Um, and just the speed by which that sort of genomics or information has been happening. But... I think something that if I had the opportunity to do, I would want to be able to do something similar with proteins. And if you could do PCR for proteins, 
and replicate proteins at the same context you're doing with genomic information, I think that's what I would want to do. If I could figure that out at the same pace of uh, what you can do with genomics, I think that would be a game-changing idea. So. Is stems are working on that? <laughs> no, not only in my head. <laughs> Well, thank you all very much for coming on and talking to your uh, other stem cell family here today. And thank you for creating magic in our lives and especially Brenda's, who's apparently uh, codependent on you guys for <laughs> your kids. Well, you know, I, I appreciate them very much. Uh, and as I, I think because I don't know a world before these kids. Um, so I I don't I, 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 I know. I, I might, I might be, what's the word? I might be a little bit... Um, uh, ignorant of the past, I, uh, am I? Uh, what was the word? Um, young, Brenda. The, the term, young. The term. The, ter the term is young. <laughs> Thank you for all making us all feel old. You know, I've, I've used stem cells, uh, organoid line culture for years because it's a pain making your own WLRN media. Makes sense. Thank you, Andy and Hannah, for joining us for taking the time of sharing your experience uh, with us and our listeners. Thank you. All right, that brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show's notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at, at @immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time.